All right. You know, um, we have been going through the Bible, the origin and the development of Scripture on Wednesdays, and it always seems to be that in the last five minutes, someone asks a question like, what is the meaning of life? <laughs> so last week, uh, Linda asked a question in the last five minutes that I didn't get a chance to answer, but I want to talk about it. Um, today, because I thought it, it's not only a good question, it's actually the question, if you think about it. Her question was, how do you trust and love God when there is so much evil all around, when there is so much pain all around, when the world seems to be going in the direction that it's going? How do you love, how do you trust a God who allows that? And you notice that I said I want to talk about it today, because it's not that I can answer a question like that. You know, if there were an answer to a question like that, we would have had it long ago, right? Job, the, the widely acknowledged oldest book in the Bible, is all about that exact question. There's a whole branch of, of philosophy called theodicy. If you ever heard that word before, it means God's justice. And the whole point of, the, of this branch of philosophy is try to justify God's existence in the presence of evil. Evil's a problem, isn't it? It's really only a problem for us monotheists, if you think about it. If you're a polytheist, you got good gods and bad gods. Problem solved, right? If you're an atheist, you got no god. Problem solved, right? But if you're a monotheist, if you believe in one god, and not only that, but you believe that that god is all good and all powerful, and yet evil exists, well, pick any two, because you can't have all three. Because if God doesn't stop the evil that's around us, he's not all good. And if he can't stop the evil around us, then he's not all powerful. And this is the problem that we have. And really, when you think about it, all of these religious systems basically are trying to answer that question. Who's in charge? Who's in control? What's going on? Do our lives have any meaning and purpose? Because in the face of all the evil that we're facing, you know, how is there any controlling authority? That makes any kind of sense. Now, there are other explanations that we've come up with as well within monotheism. You know, that God is teaching, instructing, chastising, disciplining, you know, doing all those things. And so the evil around us is meant for that. And although there's no question that we learn from the pain in our lives that's caused by the evil that we see, how in the world do we trust or love a God who teaches like that? Do you see where we're at? Do you see where the problem is? So what we want to do is just talk about, oh, yeah, the other explanation, of course, is Satan. You know, Satan is the the author of the evil in the world. But that doesn't let God off the hook, does it? No, because the buck still stops at God's desk. If he allows Satan, then he's still allowing it. And so this problem of evil bedevils every generation in every time period, as long as we're, tr- we're positing one God, we've got to deal with this in some way. So, in his book on trust, Brendan Manning, we read this uh, a while back in one of our book studies. It's called Ruthless Trust. In his book on trust, he tackles this head-on. And I wanted to read just a little bit, because I think he does a good job of stating the problem. And he calls it the enormous difficulty. That's not bad, huh? So he devotes a whole chapter to the enormous difficulty. And he starts with Psalm 89. Forever I will sing the goodness of the Lord. And then he writes, 
How difficult for me to sing that song when a morning phone call delivered the news that my 41-year-old friend, Rich Mullins, had been killed in a gruesome auto accident just a few hours earlier in Illinois. Without explanation, I turned down several requests to speak at memorial services in his honor in Nashville, Wichita, and Chicago. I was lost in the tangled, dark, and frightening inner world of my grief and doubt, fear, and anger over Rich's death. Taste and see the goodness of the Lord, Psalm 34. How hard for Ann Donovan when she delivered a stillborn baby. She said, those things I had relied on, modern science, women's intuition, God's mercy, had failed, and I had nothing to hold on to. When friends offered well-meaning words of condolence, such as, it was God's will, we cannot understand God's will, and told her how privileged she should feel now that she has her very own baby angel, the only taste in her mouth was ashes. Praise the Lord, for he is good, Psalm 135. Scant praise sounded from the people of the Dominican Republic ravaged by Hurricane George's. Thousands dead, families shattered, tens of thousands homeless, and the economy in ruins. No singing, tasting, and praising God's goodness for the families devastated by the earthquakes in Turkey and Taiwan, victims whose grieving we heard round the world. The ubiquitous presence of pain and suffering, unwanted, apparently undeserved, and not amenable to explanation or remedy poses an enormous obstacle to unfailing trust in the infinite goodness of God. How does one dare to propose the way of trust in the face of raw, undifferentiated heartache, cosmic disorder, and the terror of history? Any Christian writer who ignores these grim realities or dismisses them as inconsequential is either naive, dishonest, or disconnected from the trust-busting anguish of many struggling seekers and believers. When pain and suffering are conjoined with the monstrous mystery of evil, we come to a crossroads from which there is no turning back. So he's dealing with it. And the whole rest of this chapter just kind of lays on image after image after image. He really builds the point thickly. But an answer? Not so fast. An answer. What he does is he takes a detour, three more chapters after this one, of slowly building a point. Because there really isn't an answer, but there's a direction in which we can begin to look. And that's what Brennan is pointing. And that's where we have to look if we want to find an answer for ourselves. So, if we're looking for an intellectual answer, we're not going to find one. But we can find an answer if we do look in the direction that he's pointing. And where he starts in these three chapters is by quoting Arrhenius, who is a second century church father. And this might be a a quote that you've heard before, at least the first half of it. He says, the first half of this quote is often repeated and it's very famous. Second half, not so much. So the first half is, the glory of God is a human being fully alive. Have you heard that one before? The glory, yeah, I see some heads going up and down. The glory of God is a human being fully alive. But the second part is, and the life of the human consists in beholding God. All right, this is getting really interesting. So the glory of God is a human being fully alive. 
And the life of the human consists in beholding God. So what's going on here is that God's glory is reflected in a fully alive, fully realized human being. Right? But that human being is fully alive and fully realized in the beholding, in the embracing of God. In other words, in oneness with God, in identification with God. So God is the beginning and the end of Arrhenius' thought here. We are the glory of God fully alive. We are fully alive when we are beholding God. And so it comes back to the beginning again. And so the question, I suppose, is how do we behold God? If we want to be fully alive, how do we behold God? But that is a question that, that sort of is, has no meaning. How do we do that? And if we imagine we're doing it, are we? So maybe a better question is not how do we behold God, but when are we fully alive? Maybe that's the better question because that maybe is something that we can start to understand. We're fully alive only when we're beholding God, right? So when is that? If we can know when that is, then we can know when we're beholding God. That's the direction I want to take. Something with some teeth and traction, something that we can actually do. A few years ago, actually it's getting to be so, quite a few years ago, Marion and I were, uh, were driving home from Northern California and we're going through the San Joaquin Valley. Any of you been through the San Joaquin Valley? Endless, endless flat and just all, you know, just fields and fields and fields. And as you're driving through and you're trying to listen to the radio, you're, you're very aware that you're driving in and out of the broadcast ranges. You got the static, a station comes on, you like the station, and then it fades back out again as you just travel through the, the broadcast range. So we're doing that, and I'm trying to listen to the radio. And out of the static comes this song, and as soon as I heard the introduction, it just took me right back, you know, 15 years ago when I first heard it. And it's just one of those perfect songs. It's one of those songs where the lyric and, and the melody just mesh in such a way as they're inseparable. And the, and the instrumentation and the mix and everything about it is just where you want it to be. And so I'm listening to this song. I'm going right back into this emotional space, the way music can take you. And then she starts singing. And I actually put the lyrics in your handout because... I think this is going to be important as we're trying to understand when we're fully alive. She sings, Turn down the lights, turn down the bed, turn down these voices inside my head. Lay down with me, but tell me no lies. Just hold me close. Don't patronize me. I can't make you love me if you don't. You can't make your heart feel something it won't. Here in the dark, in these final hours, I will lay down my heart and I'll feel the power. But you won't. No, you won't. Because I can't make you love me if you don't. I'll close my eyes, then I won't see the love that you don't feel when you're holding me. Morning will come and I'll do what's right. Just give me till then to give up this fight. I can't make you love me if you don't. Come on, you've all been there, right? You've all experienced unrequited love. Every single one of us has felt that sting. Every single one of us knows exactly what that feels like. Don't we? 
I remember, gosh, it's getting to be 40 years ago. I was on tour with a music group and I uh, fell in love with one of the castmates there and we had a, a thing, you know? <laughs> a thing, you know? It lasted exactly as long as the tour lasted. And then when it was over, she broke up with me. And remember, I was in Tucson, Arizona, and she broke up with me. And it was just like, oh, God, that feeling. You know what I'm talking about. You just feel like your insides are completely turned out, like you, you ate ground glass or something. I mean, there's just nothing that you can do to stop that feeling. And I remember sitting in there was a park. I don't know why we were in a park. We were in a park with one of my friends from the cast, and we were sitting in the swings in, in, the, in the playground, and, you know, and, and I'm having my fit, whatever I'm doing, and he's just sitting there lamely not knowing what to do with me. You know? But there was that moment that's still in my, in my head. You've all got your moments. I know you do. We all have. And we've all been on both sides of those moments, too, haven't we? You know, sometimes we're the hurt-er and sometimes we're the hurt-e. But uh, this loss, this feeling of loss, this loss of relationship cuts so deep. And I'm not just talking about romantic relationships, either. It's any loss. Any loss. Death, the empty nest syndrome. There's parents here that are really hurting over not having their children with them, in their homes, the way that they've been used to for 17, 18, 20, 25 years. Maybe it's a move. Maybe it's some sort of other tragedy. Maybe it's an illness. Whatever breaks the relationship as we've known it is this heartbreak. And whatever breaks the relationship as we know it is evil to us, right? But the evil causes pain in our hearts turns our insides into ground glass only if there was a relationship there in the first place to break. Think about that. I mean, you can empathize with other people's pain and other people's heartbreak, but you're only going to feel it yourself to the extent that you identify with that other person. And maybe it's hearing news from the other side of the globe, and you'll hurt again to the extent that you identify with them. If you don't, you won't. It'll register intellectually. But you're not going to feel that grind until it touches home, until there's a relationship that you had that is now broken. No relationship, no pain. Only as painful as we identify with the loss. When are we beholding God? When are we fully alive? There is a wonderful book if you are want to move into a little bit of egg-headed space. Um, it's by Belden Lane. It's called The Solace of Fierce Landscapes. And he is talking about how our faith as Christians is rooted in and shaped by the desert landscape from which it came. I mean, our faith was birthed in the deserts of, of the Near East. And that fierce landscape, those barren and, and, and wasted landscapes, if you will, gave an understanding of God to our forefathers that is still being transmitted to us today. And he wrote a summary of what those early desert fathers understood about their relationship with God. And it's this. God is a desert whose fullness of glory is hidden from human sight. God is a desert whose fullness of glory is hidden from human sight, known only in an unknowing and a risking of love. The fullness of God's glory is hidden from us. The only way we can know it is when we accept the fact that we can't understand it intellectually. 
It just goes away. But we can know it in the risking of love. Okay. Starting to layer things up here. We can't behold God directly. That's impossible. We can't hold him in our minds. God told Moses, you can't see my full glory. You can see the trailing glory, and that's about it. So we can't see God directly. We can't answer the question that Linda is asking, at least not logically. But by accepting the unknowing, this non-logical, non-verbal knowing, we can behold God in the risking of love. And love is always a risk, isn't it? The moment we love anything, truly love anything, we are now vulnerable. We're heartbreakable. We're going to be singing that achy, breaky heart song soon because we have put ourselves in a position to get hurt, to get broken because human relationships are always oscillating, right? So as soon as we put ourselves into that position, we are now in a vulnerable position. We're ready to get hurt. But how is that beholding God? How is God ever at risk? If we're beholding God at the moment that we're in the most risk, we're the most vulnerable, and that's supposed to be beholding God? Then if that's when we're most fully alive, how is God ever at risk? Can we say that at that moment of being in love, we are also fully alive, we are God's glory, and we are beholding God at the same time? Is that God's condition as well? Can God's heart be broken, in other words? What does the scripture tell us? Does the scripture tell us anything? As usual, not directly. We're not going to be able to look it up chapter and verse. God's heart can be broken. But there are clues there. There are stories there. And one of the primary ones, and I know we use it over and over again because it is just like the all-purpose story that Jesus tells when it comes to the Father's love is the prodigal son. And you all know the story of the prodigal son probably by now. Jesus says that a father has two sons. And the younger son, he's had it with the household thing. He's had it with being the, the, the son and the dependent. Give me my share of the inheritance now. That was a request punishable by death in that culture. And Jesus is laid in on thick here. He's using every trick in the book to try to get his people to get the absolute audacity, absurdity, the, the, the radical craziness of this father's love. That request, as he said, it would have got a gasp from the group listening to ask for your inheritance now, to take it out of the family where it was supposed to stay and nurture following generations. He takes it out. And then to lose it in a Gentile world, to end up eating with the pigs as low as you could possibly go in Jewish thought. For such a person to come back to the community after having lost his inheritance in the Gentile world, to try to come back to a Jewish community because they had no place else to go, They had a ceremony for that. It was called kazaza. Literally means the cutting off. As soon as such a person came to the city gates, a group of elders would greet them and throw a pot, a huge pot, right in front of him and shatter it on the ground in front of him. Some accounts say that it was filled with burnt beans as well. And they would shatter that in front of him as a symbol of the cutting off, of the brokenness of the relationship. And they would never be allowed back. They were outcast, you know, forevermore. But what happens when the young man comes back to his senses and says, hey, even my father's servants eat better than this. I'm going to just go back and say, I'm no longer be worthy to be called your son, but just make me one of your hired servants. 
And then he starts to trek home, rehearsing the speech in fear of what his father may say, in fear of meeting the mob in front of the, the city gates, breaking the pot in front of him. Everything that you can imagine must have been going through his mind at that time, step after step after step, as he's approaching his hometown. And when he gets there, what does Luke tell us at chapter 15? But when he came to his senses and said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. And I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. And so he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Wow. There's five verbs there, all in a tumbling row in that last sentence, right? The father saw him, felt compassion, ran, embraced, and kissed. Five verbs. A master of understatement, I'm telling you. <laughs> oh, it's kind of like saying 9-11 was a bad day. You know, that uh, maybe Romeo and Juliet had a crush on each other or something. This is the most understated way that we could possibly translate those words. I want to take those words one at a time because to understand what's really going on, to understand what is happening in the Father's heart, inside the Father, we have to understand these words. When he saw him, it just isn't a casual seeing of him off on the road someplace. The word here is to stare, it's to discern, it's to take heed There's an intensity to this. Imagine the father every single day keeping a vigil, every single day going to the front door, going to the lattice at the windows and looking out, every single day wondering where his son is. Any of you who have had a child who was out somewhere and didn't know where, I can't imagine what that feels like. I lost my daughter when she was three for about 20 minutes, and I thought I was going to throw up running up and down frantically the streets and trying to find her because she got out. Imagine what that's like for years on end. Some of you maybe know. Every day wondering, is this the day I'm going to see him again? Is this the day I'm going to get some news of him again? And then there he is. Is that really him? How many times must he seen someone coming down the road or cresting the, the hill and wondering, and has that start, that, that feeling, oh, oh, it's not him. Okay, And then he realizes it is him. And he feels compassion. You know what that word actually translates to? It moved his bowels. That's literally what that means. Now, that doesn't translate so well for us because that means something else in our culture, right? But haven't you felt when your stomach just feels like it turns upside down? Haven't you felt when your heart just feels like it stops, it freezes for a second, and you get that pain in your chest? Haven't you ever felt when everything just seems to be coming up to your throat? You know what he's talking about. The ground glass thing. That's what he's feeling. He's feeling all of this overturning and this almost bursting out. This is what these words are trying to get across. The stomach flips. The heart skips a beat. This is radical. This is visceral that the father feels when he realizes this is his son. And then he ran. The word that is used there is the same word that's used for a foot race in the stadium. 
It was a race that you were putting everything into. It also is used in connotation with being in extreme peril, and you're running for your absolute life. You know that, that thing with the bear? I don't have to outrun the bear, I just have to outrun you. It's like that. You're running from the bear. That's the kind of running that he's doing. And we pointed out here before that Hebrew patriarchs didn't run. That was undignified. If you were really going to run like that, you had to pull up your robes. You had to pull up your skirts and, and bare your legs, and that was something that no Hebrew patriarch would do. But he doesn't. He's doing all sorts of things he should not be doing. And then he embraced his son. Embraced. Okay, that can mean a lot of things to us. But this is three words in succession that are translated as embrace. The first one means to take hold or to seize, with some violence even. Take hold and seize. The second word means to superimpose upon. And the third word is the word for neck or throat. It literally means to fall upon your neck, to grab around the neck and hold on. If you imagine this as a movie, and a scene in a movie... It's as if the father sprints to him and just throws himself and his arms around his son's neck and he's like hanging there, faint for support almost, hanging on his son. And remember, this son just came out of the pigsty. Imagine what he smelled like. He didn't care. He's hanging on his son for everything that he's worth, his full weight. And the boy is probably staggering under the weight. But that's what the word means. And then he kissed him. This is a compound word that Luke creates because phileo is to kiss, but kata is a word that means brings intensity to it. This is intense. This is repeated. This is extreme. The word literally means he couldn't stop kissing him intensely. Imagine the scene. Imagine what's going on here. Is there any more vivid picture that you can imagine of heartbreak released. The heartbreak that was pent up for all those years suddenly released on this smelly child. And this picture is mirrored in Genesis. This time in the context of Jacob and and Esau. You know the story? Jacob steals the birthright that Esau was supposed to have his firstborn. He pretends that he's Esau and puts lamb skins over his arms, and and, uh, basically Esau sells it for a a pot of porridge anyway because he's just hungry. But this act, this, this scheming by Jacob, estranges the two brothers to the point that Esau is so angry, Jacob's afraid that he's going to kill him. So he splits north up to Haran and uh, lives there for 20 years. He finally marries Rachel. He has a huge family, a clan of his own. He's got flocks, but he knows that he's supposed to come back. He knows that he's, he's supposed to come back to his homeland, but he's afraid of his brother, and rightly so, because of what he did. And when he gets, he's moving south, and when he gets to the crossing of the Jabok, the, the, the river there, small tributary, he realizes he has to have some strategy here because he's heard. He sent his spies out ahead, and Esau is waiting there with 400 men. And so when he crosses the river, he goes first, but he separates his camp. He puts his handmaidens and all their children in one uh, group, and then behind them is his, his second wife and all her children. And then lastly, 
uh, is Rachel and her children. And he's in front because he's trying to protect what's most dear to him as he goes to meet his brother. But look what happens here at Genesis 33. Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maids. And he put the maids and their children in front and Leah and her children next and Rachel and Joseph last. But he himself passed on ahead of them and bowed down to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Then Esau ran to meet him, embraced him, and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. The same verbs, the same meaning, the same intensity of a heartbreak, of bitterness, of fear being released. Imagine what Esau was feeling all those years, watching his parents die, having his clan shrink, mourning for the brother that he was angry at before, but not anymore. To have that moment of release, all the heartbreak carried for so long. And then in verse 8, and he said, this is Esau speaking, what do you mean by all this company which I have met? And he, Jacob, said back to him, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have plenty, my brother. Let what you have be your own. But Jacob said, no, please, if now I have found favor in your sight, then take my present from my hand, for I see your face as one sees the face of God, and you have received me favorably. To Jacob, Esau is the face of God. There could be nothing clearer He didn't deserve the forgiveness. He didn't deserve to be greeted favorably. He didn't deserve to be shown what his brother had shown him, and yet there it is. The prodigal didn't deserve anything that he got from the father, but Esau's face and the father's face are God's face in our midst. And if that's still kind of vague, Hosea spells it out so completely. And if you know the book of Hosea, it's an extended metaphor of Hosea, who is ordered to marry a prostitute, have three children who are symbolically named for the loss and and, and the difficulty of their relationship. And then finally the cut comes, the divorce comes, and then he's ordered by God to go and buy her back from slavery or from wherever she ended up and bring her back and reconcile her to himself and to his children. As a stated metaphor of exactly what was happening between the Lord and the northern kingdom of Israel. Read here. At Hosea 11, when Israel was a youth, this is the Lord speaking, when Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more they called them, now here's an interesting way that that the Hebrews have of expressing themselves. The first line is first person, and it suddenly switches to third person without any turn signal or anything. It's just like you got to keep up, right? So here's the Lord speaking in first person, and then suddenly switches to third. And the they has no antecedent. Who's they? He's talking about all the prophets that came before. When Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they, the prophets, called them, the more they went from them. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning incense to idols. Yet it is I who taught Ephraim to walk. And Ephraim was one of the tribes of the northern kingdom, but it was understood as a placeholder for all ten of the northern tribes. And this was in the mid-8th century, just before the Assyrians came and wiped them out. 
It is I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of a man, with bonds of love. And I became to them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws. And I bent down and fed them. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? My heart is turned over within me. Here's that image again. All my compassions are kindled. Wow. Right there, there is the forlorn lover. There is the parent. There's every human relationship depicted in that imagery. And why is God described in such earthy terms throughout our scriptures, especially the Old Testament? In such earthy terms, in such vulnerable terms, in such human terms. Well, John tells us that God is love. First John 4, right? But perfect love is only perfect if it casts out fear. And perfect love does cast out fear. How does it do that? It does it by setting us perfectly free. This is what Jesus said. He said, if you follow this way of mine, if you follow my commands, which is to love each other as I've loved you, then you're going to know the truth, and the truth will make you free. That is the goal. That is the, 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 the sum total of this relationship with our Father. Perfect love casts out fear by making us perfectly free. And love is only perfect the moment it sets the beloved perfectly free. If you think about it, love is only love if it's freely chosen. If it's coerced in any way, if it's bought and sold in any way, it's no longer love. It becomes something else. And we know the difference. We know the value of a relationship that is freely chosen as opposed to one that's manipulated, as opposed to one that's codependent, as opposed to one that is bound by anything other than the free choice to be where you are, sharing who you are with someone else who is perfectly free to do the same thing. This is the nature of love. We all know this. We understand this. God risked losing us in order to really have us in love, if you think about it that way. And I know how Genesis reads, But the story in the garden is the record of the moment that God gave us the choice. The part of us that's created in God's image is the part that is free to choose. Because unless we're free to choose, we can't love. We're automatons, we're puppies, but we're not human beings who can love as God loves. God had to risk losing us in order to actually have us. And we will only behold him, we will only see his face as we risk entering into love ourselves. Loving our beloved by letting them choose us or not. And that's the rub. How do we know that we're free to choose? How would we know that? If I chose this, was that directed? Did I chose that? You know, the only way that we can know that we are free to choose is that so many of us are choosing different things. It's all around us. 
we choose different things. How many times in your life have you chose not love? How many times in your life have you chose not relationship? How many times have you chosen dysfunction, destruction, even though you knew it was destructive and you choose it anyway? And then at other times in your life, you choose the exact opposite. We have been set free to choose whatever we want to choose. And maybe it's in the choosing of every possible alternative that we can choose in life that we finally learn to continue to consistently choose love, to choose connection, to choose relationship, to behold the face of God. But in the choosing of love, we also realize that the flip side is that we are risking something. We are risking getting hurt. We are risking putting ourselves in that vulnerable position again. And that's when we see the face of God. Did God risk? The scriptures seem to be telling us so. With every one of those visceral images of the father, of Esau, of Hosea, That's the face of God. If we choose to see it, if we can learn to see it. And until we learn to choose love, until we learn to love love, maybe, more than we risk the fear of pain, of loss, the pain, the evil of our choices, in this very strange way, is also the proof of love in the world around us. Can you see that? If there weren't evil, if everyone was choosing love, the only place that you get uniformity of choice is where there is no choice. The fact that evil exists is also the proof that love exists. When we're free to choose it, it's real. Now that's an intellectual answer. You can accept it, or not, you can go home and think about it till the cows come home and do what you want with it. It's an answer that helps me to be able to process in real time the pain and the evil and the dysfunction that I have to deal with every single day. And it helps to keep my God on his throne of love. But I'll tell you what, when the pain strikes, it's of absolutely no comfort. How could it be? It's just an idea in my head. And when it's my gut that's churning, the head doesn't really help. But we have to have something that we're, a paradigm, a structure that we use to move through our days and just realize that when the heartbreak comes, we're going to have to walk through it. But in the heartbreak, in the fact that we're feeling the pain because the relationship is real, we are still beholding the face of God. We are becoming the fully alive human that is reflecting the glory of God. And so starting there, starting right here at this point, it gives us a way forward. I'm going to finish with just a little passage from the fifth way and see if this kind of brings it together. An email arrived from the 34-year-old Texas mother of three who was recently laid off from her full-time job and suffering a full-blown spiritual crisis. Quote, some months I don't even allow myself to ponder the questions because when I do, I cannot stop in the bathroom crying out to God or whoever is in charge out there that might be listening. I have been in and out of depressions, unsure of anything, searching for an elusive answer, but I've come to the realization that I may never find what I'm looking for. I must say, and I hope you will not take offense, that I honestly don't even know if God exists. 
I am like that lost sheep at this time in my life, crying out silently with questions that no man can answer. Who are we? Why are we here? Who am I? How can generations of people be lied to? My questions go even deeper, and unfortunately I'm told that it is a matter of faith to know the answers. And the sad thing is that I want to have faith, but I have none left. I'm afraid of being deceived. Every single religious group out there thinks that they have the corner on the market of truth. But how can this be? In my heart, I want to go back to being nine years old and believing that there is a good God and there is a Savior who cares for me, even if no one else does. But I can't. We corresponded for some weeks, and though she was always appreciative of my attempts, I never got the impression that I had explained anything to her satisfaction. I wanted to so badly to cradle that little nine-year-old girl inside her and somehow let her know that everything was going to be all right, that answers can and do come in ways most unexpected. Maybe if I could just find the right words, I thought. After a while, she just stopped writing. Yeshua really couldn't explain it to anyone's satisfaction either. There are no words for such a job. In the throes of a pain so deep that who am I becomes a meaningless string of words, Yeshua's own words, I and the Father are one, seem equally meaningless. It's only in the process of being loved, experiencing love, that an identification with that love and with the source of that love begins to take on substance and meaning as the only possible answer to question. When I and this love are one, is a big moment, a moment when life makes sense. In the face of everything I can't know, in the face of the uncertainty, pain, and panic, I can at least start with what I do know. I can at least do that. And if I listen carefully, if I read between the lines, Yeshua is always trying to tell me that no matter where I am in life, no matter what I'm feeling, No matter how much I think I've failed or how unworthy I am, how much I feel unlovely and therefore unlovable, how much I question whether God can really accept me or whether I can accept the risk of really laying myself down, at any time, at any moment, I can stop, I can turn around and re-present myself to God. Always. It's that simple and that difficult. And in the moment I stop and turn to look, no matter how many times that may be, he will be right there, or perhaps running up the road to tackle me. He'll be right there because he always was and was never anywhere else. And he'll have a soft look on his face as I'm shifting and sweating and reeling off all the words I've rehearsed to try to explain myself, to try to convince him and persuade him to take me back until the moment I'm ready to let him mercifully stop me And say close to my ear, Honey, relax. It's okay. It's all right. You had me at hello. You had me at hello. Let's pray. Father, this is really hard for us. Help us once again just to lay everything down and show up, just to turn and face you and see what happens. Even though trust is beyond us right now, understanding is certainly beyond us. 
but help us just to keep showing up right here, right now with each other to continue to risk getting hurt by putting ourselves into relationships, to extending ourselves to others, to be willing to feel that heartbreak again because in the doing of that, we are beholding your face. We're finally understanding what it means to be one with you. So no holds barred, Lord. Take us into that place every time, that place of complete connection, that place of vulnerability, because we want to find you. We want to know you more and more each day. Thanks for doing it for us first, Lord. It's the only way that we can love it all. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Would you all stand, please?